We'll teach about a truth today that is, uh, for you older Christians, is apparent. It should be apparent, and it really is apparent to you people who have been saved for very long. Uh, But to the younger Christian, the person who's been saved even up five, six, seven, eight years, this is a truth that you, you are learning, will learn, and will learn more as you go along. The health and wealth gospel folks are out there telling a lie by telling you that as far as this life is concerned, God wants nothing more than to make you wealthy and healthy and happy. That is not God's purpose for you. And I hope you get it. Healthy, wealthy, and happy in this life is not God's purpose for you. As a born-again believer, he has a purpose for us, and that's to do the will of him that sent us. Jesus said, I do the will of him that sent me. It's the same thing Jesus had or we have, to do the will of the Father. He to do the will of God abideth forever. And God's will oftentimes cannot be assimilated and followed without big things happening in the life of the individual. Uh, when we get saved, we're 99.99% world. We get born from above, we become, the Holy Spirit comes in us and bursts us, baptizes us, as it were, immerses us, and God comes in and dwells us forever. That's the truth of the Bible, John 14 I believe it was verse 16 says he'll never leave us. The Holy Spirit that has come in as God in us will never leave us. Be with us all eternity after this life. But God begins to work in us a work. Begins to make us like Jesus. And begins to use us as we will allow for his kingdom, for his glory to get out the message of who God is. Uh, how many here in this auditorium have heard of C.H. Uh, Spurgeon? Raise your hand. You've heard of C.H. Spurgeon. It's, that is simply amazing. Maybe it's because I've spoke about it so much. C.H. Spurgeon. He started preaching in 1861 in a city of London, which most of you have never been to or if you have been to it, you've only been to it for a short period of time. Almost nobody in this room was probably born in London or raised in London. That you would know a guy, C.A. Spurgeon, that you would know him is amazing. I mean, the hands were probably 90% in here. I, I am really shocked by that. I'm, I'm happy. But I'm going to talk about him a little bit and what God did in his life. It's kind of a biography. And then I'm going to go to an application of what God is doing and will do and has done, will do in our lives. Say Spurgeon, and according to your hands, you just reinforced it, may have been one of the greatest preachers since the Apostle Paul. According to the book uh, Shadow of the Broad Brim, which is a great biography of him, Richard Day wrote it in 1935, I believe he did it. From 1861 to 1891 in London, at the church there in London, which I've been to that church, is still there, burnt down a couple times, but they've rebuilt it. And I've been there, and the guy pastor in there when I was there was a good guy, solid fundamental, it still was a solid fundamental work, amazing, really amazing. 
for that long a period of time. The guy there was excellent. Um, he atten- he some five thousand people attended the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacles, is called there in London. Five thousand people. He drew crowds in larger buildings of 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. His largest audience he ever had is reported it was 23,000 people. Now, you got to understand, that's before electricity. That's before electric lights. It's before air conditioning. It's before PA systems and before automobiles. So I just mentioned a lot of things that got you here and keep you here. If it was uh, 95 degrees and 100% humidity in this room, we'd be a lot fewer folks. If you had to come, if you had to, if you had to catch the horse to put the bridle in him this morning, I don't know if you know much about horses, but I have a real passion for horses. And uh, horses, uh, a lot of times when you come out in the morning, they know where you're going to put a bridle on them. They don't want it, and they'll begin to run from you. You've got to catch them put the bridle on them, put the saddle on them. They'll, when you try to put the saddle and tighten it up, they'll, they'll take a big breath in and hold their breath, make their stomach real big. And so when you tighten it up, you think you got to tighten. And then when you get on there, whoosh, saddle will go spin around. I'm with you on horses. Basically, horses try to kill you their whole life. That's their goal. But anyway, Chase Spurgeon wrote 140 books. 140 books were published. Over 200 total pamphlets and books, put publications put together. If you took all that C.H. Spurgeon wrote and put it up on a bookshelf, it would take 40 feet, 40 feet to hold his books and publications. That's how much he did. His sermons today are still, this is amazing, read and published more than any contemporary since him. And I'm talking about anybody you can think of. His books, his sermons, I mean, just from what we saw in here this morning, it's amazing to me that C.H. Spurgeon is still, though he has been dead many, many years, yet he is alive and well in his preaching. Though it was never recorded on a recording, put over the Internet or any of that. Yet, as you look at C.H. Spurgeon, and, and a lot of young preachers, when I was in college, Bob Jones, Pensacola, they would, they would put him up there and say, well, this, this guy was a great preacher, and really he, he is, was. And they say, you know, you want to be like, you, wanna, you are who you kind of emulate, who you look up to, who, who you want to be like. It's been said of teenagers, you are who your friends are. And so if you got good friends, you probably want to be a good kid. If you got bad friends, you probably want to be a bad kid. And you parents out there, don't fool yourself. Whoever your kids' friends are, whoever, whoever they look up to, that's who they want to be like. Makes sense. It's not real deep. It's true. So in college, they would, they would put C.H. Spurgeon up there and say, oh, it'd be like, to be like C.H. Spurgeon, to be able to preach like C.H. Spurgeon, be able to hold the attention of 5,000 people without a microphone. Without PA system. And have them come back week after week after week after week. And then when you went to a bigger place, more of them showed up. Because they wanted to hear you speak. They wanted to hear what God was going to do through you. Boy, who wouldn't want, who wouldn't want that kind of 
Who wouldn't want God to work through him like that? He'd be crazy to say no. But yet, his life was one of immense suffering and tragedy. Richard Day in his book does such a good job of, of giving that side of his life. I don't like biographies that just tell the wonderful things people do. I can't stand to read them. Because when I read them, I'm depressed. I think, man, I'll never be anything like that. I'll never have anything close to that. And what's wrong with me? Does anybody get that in here? Anybody get that? I, I read those biographies. I'm like, I hate this. But when I read the first time I read uh, Shadow of the Broad Brim, and boy, I, I read that, and I was glued to that thing. I was like, man, whoa. I'm going to re review a little bit of the, of the uh, sufferings that God brought into the life of C.H. Spurgeon so that he could be that great preacher that God made him to be. First thing that happened is he had migraine headaches. They were debilitating him sometimes for weeks and would take him out of the pulpit. When he had that many folks wanting to listen to him, he couldn't go to the pulpit because he had migraines sometimes for months. He struggled in dark. He got in a dark room, which people with migraines, I've had migraines 25 years myself, and I understood what they are like and can be debilitating, horrible, but no Advil, no Excedrin, you know, none of the medicines that we have for a day that you can take for a migraine, he didn't have them. He suffered gout. It swelled his feet and his ankles, excruciating pain. In fact, if you look gout up, it's said to be the most painful kind of arthritis. It's the most painful. How many here have had gout? Raise your hand, amen? It's a family. It's the most, one of the most painful kinds of our people that don't have it. They just don't understand. Can't even put a sheet over your skin. It's so painful. And it's not a dull pain. It's a sharp pain, pain that makes you want to squeal. He had that without help without any kind of remedy, uh, would take him out of the boat. He wrestled with long bouts of, of deep depression and despair. He would say, the great C.H. Spurgeon struggled with despair. He struggled with depression. It would come over him like a cloud and despair. He was taken out of the pulpit with pneumonia for two years at one time, now, this is a wild thing. During those two years of pneumonia, being out of the pulpit, people wanting to hear him, can't go. There's no recording. He doesn't get to record it ahead of time and play it uh, like we could now, what we did during COVID, you know. He didn't get to do that. When you're out of the pulpit, you're out. He wrote a, a three-volume set book called The Treasury of David during his time of pneumonia. He had it in his library. And by the way, if you don't have the set, if you don't have the Treasury of David, which is a commentary in the book of Psalms, it's still the best commentary ever written in the book of Psalms. And it was written during some of the lowest times of his life. Some of the saddest times of his life, God used that man to write that. His wife, that wasn't all. His wife I had some children, and she had, now we know now what happened. She had hemorrhaging, and this hemorrhaging wasn't enough to kill her, but was enough to make her extremely anemic, and she could not leave, she could not get, I really hardly get out of bed for 16 years. She couldn't hardly get out of bed and was of no use to him as a wife. Right during the peak of his ministry, when he really needed her help, she was in need of help. 
And not only did he have these things I've just mentioned to you, ailments that had very little, by the way, remedy for at all, still even today, people who suffer these things have very little remedy. He had this, this maybe, the, maybe the worst trial that God sent in his was this little woman was so sickly. And uh, by the way, after he died, God raised her up, healed her, her hemorrhaging stopped, and she lived, I think, 70-some years old. Amazing. But while he was alive, most of this, especially his peak years of ministry, over really a period of 23 years, she was invalided. His lungs were so bad that he would have to leave London. I guess London is not real conducive to having uh, lung trouble. He traveled to southern France, a place called Mentone. I've never been there. For three months during the worst of the winter of England. And uh, again, he was out of the pulpit, unable to be with his friends, and was sick. Yet God chose to use this man more than any other man in his generation and possibly more than anybody since the Apostle Paul. When he died at the young age, and I say young age, I used to think this was old. When I was in my 40s, I thought he died at 58 years old. He lived a full life. Not anymore. I'm in my last couple months of my 60s and enjoying every day, by the way, of being a young man. And so uh, he was 58 years old when he died, young by anybody's uh, expectations, especially people that are close to that. When he died, some 60,000 people attended his funeral. That didn't do him any good, but, but it was respectful of his influence. They were dignitaries and of every kind, folks from all walks of life came to hear what they called by that time the prince of preachers. And many young people, as I said, aspired to be this man, but they do not aspire to have what it took to be that man. You cannot have the depth and the breadth and the height of the walk that C.H. Spurgeon had without the intensely painful days and nights that he had without relief. The weeks of hopeless depression and despair. The endless years spent watching the love of his life suffer immensely. The pressure, maybe even greater than all of that, the pressure of the success, his largeness, his fame, the expectation of people upon him, crushing him as it were as he's had to stay home and couldn't be in the pulpit. Critics, on top of all that, critics like dogs constantly at his feet and ankles, nipping and biting at every opportunity they had to criticize him. And i got to ask you a question. Why does God treat his servants so? Why? Well, I think the answer can be found in a shadow, at least, illustrated by our text in Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. That was all introduction. This sermon should go no more than two hours, no more. Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. You remember the people cried out for water, and behold, I will, uh, he told Moses, Behold, I will stand before thee, talking to Moses there upon the rock at Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and, thou, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Do not mix this up with the time he didn't do what God wanted him to do. But God told him to smite the rock. 
In Job chapter 16, verse 12, it says, I was, but Job says, I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. Just like Job had to be smitten to make him understand, so if I may say in a shadow, this rock at Horeb had to be smitten to produce water for a thirsty land. The rock of Horeb was barren and cold and hard and unfruitful and, and sufficient and protected, but it was useless. And nobody would have ever mentioned or known about it unless Moses had smitten it. And why do I say that? Is God does not want you to be a museum piece for others to look upon. He wants you to be a water-giving stream in the desert. That's what he wants for our life. It wasn't until God had Moses smite the rock that anything good came out of it. Smitten people are broken people who become tender, understanding, compassionate, concerned, intercessory, supplicating rivers of living water. Years ago, when I was at school, a young man got up to preach. And he chose John chapter 7, verse 38. You may want to take your Bible and look that up. John chapter 7, verse 38, as his text. And we're all in our 20s, sitting in preacher boy's class. This young man gets up. He's one of us. He's getting up to preach. And he says Jesus' words here, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And he began to go and did exposition on that, and he talked about how that God wants to take your life, which will, without Christ, will be basically live to help yourself and increase your wealth and increase your name. And he's going to take you if you're willing to give your life to him, and he's going to make you help other people. He's going to help you to feed other people spiritually and help them with eternal things, not to so much the temporal area of life. He's going to, he's going to help you to be Eternally useful is what I'm trying to get at. In the process of, as, as it were, making come out of you rivers of living water, you cannot escape the process that he uses to do that. And don't think you can escape. If you aspire to know God's power, and I hope you do, if you long for his intimacy and his breath upon your life, and ministry. You say, Brother Bill, though I have a ministry, everybody's got a ministry. If you live and breathe and move around, you have a ministry. What is a ministry? It's simply as an influence for the things of God. What is your influence for the things of God? You don't, by the way, are not able to really tell what your own influence is. Only God can. But you have an influence, and God wants you to have one for Him. If you crave to see the right hand of God bared in your behalf, his, his right hand of power uh, bared in your behalf. You, as that rock in Horeb, and as any other person that's ever done anything for God in the Bible, will have to be smitten in your life. And I don't think we're supposed to get too, what am I going to say, think it's strange that that would happen. Now, let me read you a verse in First Peter chapter 4. In verse 12, it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. 
but rejoice insomuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. So even back in Peter, and Peter, by the way, I asked this health, some health and wealth guy came up to me one time, and we were debating this whole philosophy and theological difference. And, and I says, well, have you ever noticed or have you ever studied what God did with the apostles? Now, the apostles are some of the most, they got to be some of the most beloved of all Jesus' followers, wouldn't you say? He handpicked the apostles. He called Peter, James, John. He called every one of them. He even called Judas Iscariot, knowing who he was. And, and so he, he loved them. He taught them. They, they walked with him. They, they ate with him. They moved around with him. There for about three, three and a half years, they had a, they had a uh, intense schooling, as it were, as, as he showed them. He didn't just teach them. He showed them who God was. You say, how is that? Well, Philip said, show us the Father. And he said, well, have you seen me? You've seen the Father. So what was Jesus doing? He was showing them who is, who is God. What's he like? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He did those things, planned, calculated, the things he said, the things he taught. I don't believe there was a wasted moment with the Lord Jesus. And he's teaching of his, of his sweet apostles, excluding, obviously, Judas, because he knew Judas would never accept it and was going to turn on him and betray him. He knew that from the beginning. But the other 11, I said to this man, have you ever gone back and John Fox wrote a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. John Fox wrote a book called John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Now, you people, I'm throwing, some, I'm throwing some diamonds and some emeralds out this morning. I'm throwing some rubies out this morning. And don't just let them go down and let these old people pick them up. Write this stuff down. Get this stuff in your phone. Buy these books. A book? Buy an old-fashioned, fundamental, independent, Baptist paper book. And read and grab and feel the weight of it and turn the pages and mark the words. A book. Because when the electricity is gone, your iPhone will be useless. Hmm. You go to the third world, well, they may have iPhone in the third world now, but most of, much of the third world, when I visited, it had no electricity. Without electricity, you can cut out a bunch of, whole bunch of stuff, amen? But books are still good. That old John Fox wrote a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And in that... He, he spent his whole, pretty much his life, researching that information, verifying that information, making sure this information he got was real, uh, testified to, wasn't rumored, and was real. Okay, the, the book is well documented. He spent his time doing it. People through history have uh, verified it and validated it and said this book was, test, was good. It's a good book. What's in there is not not made-up stuff, not stories passed around through the years. People who hate God and hate the Bible and hate that book, they say that, but that's not so. It doesn't follow the history of it. If you read in that book, you'll read pretty much 
what was known of the apostles' endings. Every one of the apostles died violently, painfully, except for one, John, the apostle of love. He died of old age. He was alive at least at 100 A.D. He died of old age. The only one that we know of that died naturally. The rest of them, Peter was hung upside down. He's, they wanted to hang him, and of course the testimony is he said, I don't want to, I'm not worthy to die like my, my Savior died. Hang me upside down. I don't know how, how uh, where that's at, but bottom line, it sounds like it. The man who went from being proud to being humble. And so I said to this man, have you noticed or have you read or are you educated enough to see that the apostles, every one of them had suffering and were smitten by God in their lives. And yet it was through these men that the gospel got to the world. If you'll look it up and you'll investigate it all, you'll find that people that were used of God, that were submissive to God and did the will of God have been smitten by God. Think it not strange of suffering in these fiery trials that come to try you as some strange thing happened unto you. God is molding and making a servant that understands who he is and has a testimony of the people around him. If I may say it this way, and you're not going to like this, we're so bad, we're so bad, that God's got to do that to us to make us where we ought to be. We need it. See, Spurgeon wasn't any different. He was a man of like passion just like we are. It required pneumonia. It required gout. It required migraine headaches. It required his wife suffering like that. For him, for God to be able to use him without him getting puffed up or getting full of pride where God had to judge him. He knew it was God. He knew it was God. Don't think he'll escape either. When something bad happens to you, instead of saying, oh, God. I mean, and by the way, I don't mind, I don't think it's wrong when something bad happens to you or a fiery trial comes your way uh, that you would not go to God and say, God, please take it away. But as you mature in Christ, you quit saying that. Here's what you start saying. Use it for your glory. I preached a sermon 20-some years ago. And the reason I'm fidgeting with my ear is because I'm in pain. Even now while I'm preaching. Because uh, of that little, this little mic right here is making me nuts. But I'm going to use it to impassion me. God will use the troubles that come your way to eventually you'll say, thank you, Father. Thank you for them. That's where you want to be. Lord, if this is what it takes to have your power go through me to help other people so that I'm not self-centered and self existing and self-feeding and I can help other people. God, I thank you for it. That's where you want to be. That's where C.H. Spurgeon eventually got and understood. That's where 
Peter and the apostles understood in God took place of. They understood that the trouble, the tribulation worked patience. That's what they understood. They, they understood Philippians 1.29, another ruby. Philippians 1.29. It's not only been given in your behalf to, 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 to know Christ, but to suffer for him. That's a paraphrase. We've been given the ministry to suffer for Christ. How many would like to suffer for Christ? Raise your hand. No. And nobody in the right mind would say, Lord, I, I want to suffer more. You'd be crazy. That's against everything. That it, but when it comes, because I'm not saying if it comes. When God chooses to bring your own particular self-made perfect for you trouble, ask God, just get before him and say, thank you, Jesus. Instead of, now, you may spend some time begging God to take it away. Remember Paul said he had some thorn in the flesh. It was bad, real bad. The apostle Paul, who God did miracles through, uh, he, he asked God three times to take that thing away from him. And God said, no. Second time, no. Third time, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, his power was basically released through Paul's infirmities. Wow. Then Paul started getting it. Amen. He said, I'm going to start thanking God for this. He quit asking for it to go away. He said, God, use it for your glory, that the power of God may reside upon him. How will you react when God seeks to smite you with a rod of affliction? How will you react? Get mad at God? A lot of people are mad at God. They misunderstand what it's all about. They think God is supposed to give you a life of health and wealth and pleasure and happiness in this life. And if that's your idea of what God's supposed to do for you, you will eventually be mad at God. It's doomed. But if you understand that God, like that old rock at Horeb, is going to be smitten so that water, the waters of living water can come out of you to help other people and to nourish them and encourage them in the kingdom of God, then you'll understand clearly that troubles must come. And when it comes, God is going to use it for his glory and for his honor. And you'll not be bitter at God. Some of the sweetest people. Most Christ-like people I've known have been people who have had hard, long tragedies in their life, but as born-again Christians understood that God was in it. I told you the story of my niece having an autistic child and how she said she had to put her arms around that and embrace it. I preached a whole message about embracing the fact that she had an autistic child that would probably outlive her, by the way, that she's going to take care of the rest of her born days. She says, she said, Bill, it's making me a better Christian. I'm like, wow. You know, I think that's too big a trial for me. You say, Brother Bill, is it? Yeah. I didn't have an autistic child. You know how strong you are by the tests you don't have. Are you get that? I'm throwing some rubies out here, some emeralds out here. You... Say, well, I haven't had an autistic child. That's because you couldn't take it. You weren't that strong. I didn't have a Down syndrome child. Well, that's because you couldn't take it. 
you weren't that strong. God's not going to give you a temptation above that which you are able. And so if he's not trying to give you something to destroy you or to crush you. He's giving something to cultivate you into his image by his grace. I want to bear living water. I want God to work through me. I think we should pray, Jesus, I'm here. I'm submitted. I'm willing. I'm moldable to your service. And as David cried out, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew within me a right spirit. And listen to what else David said. Heal the bones which thou hast broken so that they will rejoice again. God broke David's bones, but it was for his good. Don't let, me, don't let my life be barren. Don't let my life be empty. Have mercy upon me, O God, and don't leave me alone. Don't give up on me. I had people through the years that have struggled, and they would sometimes say to me, Preacher, don't give up on me. Don't give up on me. I thought to myself, that's a good thing to say to God. The worst thing God can ever do to you is leave you alone. I don't want God to leave me alone. I want him not to give up on me. I, I know I'm not worthy of the least of his favor, not the least. I'm, least. I'm less than the least of all the Gentiles. But Lord God, don't give up on me. Let me be molded into the image of your dear son. Father, help us this morning to be able to in some degree understand what's been preached here. Words are cheap, I understand. But these things that have come into the people's lives are seriously effective and powerful. May Lord God, we understand that when you come and you smite us, as it were, that we would use these things for your honor and for your glory, that we would submit to them with a good service attitude. Make something in us. Smite us like the rock of Horeb that we may help other folks, that our life may benefit the kingdom of God, that folks may be saved through our being alive, that people may get right with God through our influence and as they look upon us as real. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's if you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.